I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is Francis Gooding, a contributing editor at the LRB, who has a piece in the current issue of the paper on the possibly surprising history of pirate settlements in 18th century Madagascar. It's a review of Pirate Enlightenment, or the real Libertalia, by the late David Graeber. Hello, Francis, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, it's uh, very nice to be here. David Graeber, who died in September 2020 at the age of 59, was an anthropologist and anarchist activist whose books include Debt, The First 5,000 Years, The Dawn of Everything, and Bullshit Jobs. He was a prominent figure in the 2011 Occupy movement, often credited with coining the phrase, We Are the 99%. He finished writing Pirate Enlightenment 10 years ago, though it's published now for the first time, and it grew out of anthropological fieldwork he undertook in Madagascar in the late 1980s. On the face of it, Pirate Enlightenment seems a more narrowly focused work than Debt, the first 5,000 years, or the dawn of everything, though as we shall see, it ends up making a larger point about the way we see the world. Um, but first, the details and the stories. Piracy, Francis. Bullshit job? Not a bullshit job. Well, no, I don't think it was a bullshit job, really. I mean, if you look at Graeber's definition of bullshit jobs in the book, they tend to be jobs which... He says that they're jobs which could disappear and um, the world would not be any worse and might even be better. Uh, so I'm not really sure how piracy as a sort of massive organised crime endeavour fits into that, but I, I think probably not bullshit. I mean, if you wanted to be, I suppose, maybe a little bit provocative, any disruption to the uh, the extractive transatlantic trade, probably a net good I suppose. <laughs> Provocative, but probably true. And one of the arguments he makes in this book, and he's he's not the first to, to make it, is that um, some pirate ships in the 17th and 18th centuries operated according to egalitarian principles. I mean, how did they operate? How egalitarian were they? Because you might think you've got the captains in charge and everyone else doing what he says. And why were they different from, if they weren't like that, why weren't they like that? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot of, there seems to be quite a lot of research on governance on pirate ships which was very very different from the way that merchant ships were governed in the 1600s and 1700s and was different again from the way that navy ships and military ships were governed and they were broadly speaking i suppose quite democratic the ships of the line the merchant ships were run with extreme brutality the captain was an autocrat and had the right to use violence, to uh, imprison crew members, and the right to withhold wages uh, or or deduct wages. And so there was an enormous amount of resentment among ordinary seamen towards captains in the merchant ships. But that's partly because the merchant ships were owned by investors or merchants themselves who were not on board the ships. The captains were employed. And so the captains were invested with a kind of absolute authority, 
by the people who stood to profit from the voyages. And the interests of the crew were not really in line with the interests of the, of the owners of the ships or their businesses. Whereas on pirate ships, there was no, there's no higher authority to invest the captain of a pirate ship with any further powers. So in effect, they were governed by consent. I mean, apart from anything else, if you'd chosen to become a pirate, you had put yourself completely beyond all laws and could expect no quarter from anyone. One of the points that Graeber makes, actually, is that um, the skull and crossbones, the Jolly Roger, although it's a very frightening symbol, it was principally referred not to the death that would be inflicted on the people that were going to be attacked by the pirates, but referred to the pirates themselves insofar as they had accepted that they were all dead men walking for the very fact of having taken up piracy as a profession. And did pirate ships, did they all fly the skull and crossbones? Because it's one of those things that you sort of imagine might have been invented, I mean, if not by Disney, as it were, but by sort of, a, I don't know, Victorian romanticisers. I mean, it was an actual pirate flag? It was an actual thing. I don't know if, I mean, oh, who knows if they all did or not, but some of them certainly did. And another very common symbol on the flag was an hourglass, which symbolised the same thing, which is that all the people on board the ship had limited time. So they'd already put themselves outside of all laws. They knew that they were they were dead men if they were ever caught. And so there was no further, there was no higher authority. Not only that, they were often made up of people who had left merchant shipping because of the treatment that they had received at the hands of merchant captains. And it, it does also seem to be the case that quite often when ships were attacked by pirates, the crew of the ships were quite happy to join the pirates because they would be treated better. At least in some cases, this certainly seems to be the case. So anyway, the, the captain had no, had no authority invested in him by anybody apart from the crew. So crews did sometimes elect their captains and there were a series of checks and balances in place to protect the crew from the captain in a way which couldn't happen in other forms of uh, uh, shipping. And presumably that they all, I was going to say that the, the pirate, that the, the entire crew shared in the, in the profit, in the plunder that you're talking earlier, that the profit on a merchant ship would go to the owner, the merchant who owned the ship, whereas a, a pirate crew, the crew were the owners of the ship in a sense. Yeah. And the ships were often stolen anyway. So the, the crew often elected the captain. The captain didn't have any particular powers over the crew, although somebody was, you know, the captain was invested with power by the crew because somebody had to you know, take responsibility for attacking a ship or things like that. And it seems to be the case that the captain had a certain sort of autocratic power to command under the circumstances of battle, say, or other sorts of decision-making, but um, couldn't really do anything beyond that that the crew wouldn't be happy with. And there was also a further person, there was a division of powers, because there was also a quartermaster, sometimes an elected quartermaster, to whom all of the other things were, all the other powers that would normally be the captain's prerogative would devolve to. So division of loot and division of food, assigning of tasks and things like that were the jurisdiction of the quartermaster who could mediate between the crew and the captain to prevent either one of them having too much power. Both people could be recalled by the crew if they didn't like them very much. And as, you know, as relatively democratic institutions, I suppose, pirate ships had, um, I suppose, what you might call constitutions or articles of association, which would specify how 
plunder was going to be divided up, which would say um, how much people were going to be given for particular acts of valour, and which would sometimes say exactly how much they would be compensated if they were injured, right down to specifically how much you'd be compensated for you know, an arm or a leg or an eye or whatever. I mean, it almost sounds if you know they get five weeks holiday a year and uh, you know final salary pension. But, uh, <laughs> but this idea of the, the sh- of a pirate ship as a as a model for a form of society, I mean, it seems very appealing in many ways. I mean, certainly compared to the alternatives to us now. But was it perceived in that way at the time? I mean, was was the idea of the the pirate ship in the sixteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds? Were there people who envisioned the pirate ship then? Not pirates themselves, but people in in London or Paris who are you know, imagining how societies might be differently organised. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was a uh, the pirate was at that time very much a f- kind of figure in the popular imagination. They were the most notorious kind of uh, f- sort of flamboyantly criminal outlaws, um, and so lots and lots of stories and sort of tales and uh, memoirs circulated both as gossip and as uh, literature and in that literature there were often tales precisely about the way that pirate ships were organized and beyond that about the way that certain pirates were reputed often to have founded kind of utopian societies or towns in remote parts of the world and those often did detail exactly how democratic and uh, equal social relations were in pirate societies. One of those books which Graeber refers to in his subtitle, one of those stories, his subtitle is The Real Libertalia, which there was a fictional Libertalia. Is that right? Libertalia was a like a utopia? Yes, there was a fictional Libertalia, or Libertatia sometimes it was called as well. Uh, it appears in one of the most famous of the kind of uh, publications about you know kind of histories of pirates, called a general history of the pirates by a man called Captain Johnson. And sometimes people think that Captain Johnson was actually a pen name of Daniel Defoe, um, but it seems to be a bit unclear. But anyway, general history of the pirates was very widely read, and is the kind of one of the main texts main sort of documents about piracy and and pirates captains from that period. It's published in the um, 1720s, I think. And it details the kind of exploits of the most famous pirates of the age. And most of the pirates in it are of historical record. They're real people, Thomas Tew or Henry Avery, people like that. But the story of Libertalia appears in the accounts of uh, Captain Misson, who's the only person in the book who doesn't seem to have been a real person. According to Captain Johnson, Misson was a French pirate from Provence who took up piracy in order to, as he said, go to war with all the world because it would deprive him of the liberty that was his right. And after various exploits uh, on board a ship called the Victoire, he um, he is said to have founded a... um, kind of a pirate settlement called Libertalia in Madagascar. And in Libertalia, everybody's former nationality uh, and religion were made null, and they were called the Liberi. Everything was divided equally, the government was democratic, and all decisions were taken in common. 
And so there's a fair amount devoted to a description of both the way that the governance of the Victoire was organised and the way that Libertalia was organised in a general history of the pirates. And so these sorts of pirate utopias really enter the literature around about that time and Libertalia is one of the most famous of them. And even if it wasn't itself a real place, that there were these settlements on the northeast coast of Madagascar made by pirates. Yes, this is absolutely the case. You see, Libertalia might not have been real, but there certainly were pirate settlements in Madagascar. And there does certainly seem to be evidence that in at least some of them, pirates had worked quite hard to transfer the sorts of arrangements and associations that pertained on board ship to life on land. Of course, there were also less salubrious pirate settlements, but Madagascar did seem to have quite a lot of them. And that's partly because Madagascar was somewhat isolated at the end of the 1600s. The west coast of the island was ruled by quite large and powerful kingdoms that carried on busy trade with East Africa and traded into the wider Indian Ocean trade routes, which of course were incredibly busy and extremely venerable. But the northeast coast, particularly of Madagascar, was rather out of the way. The island itself had not really been brought under the kind of expanding jurisdiction of any of the European trading companies like the Royal Africa Company or anything like that. And there'd been no attempt or no successful attempt to settle it by Europeans. So there was not much European interference. And the kingdoms of the West and the South didn't really reach up to the northeast coast. So it was quite isolated from what was going on elsewhere in the country. But it was a good spot from which to launch raids on those busy shipping routes. Yes, so it was a perfect spot for pirates. So you find that at a certain point, lots and lots of pirates begin to go there and settle down. It was a very good place from which to launch raids on Indian Ocean shipping, which was, of course, incredibly rich. And it was a good place to stay out of the way of the authorities. So by the end of the 1600s, there seemed to be several thousand pirates living in Madagascar in various little settlements or towns. And there are some quite large towns of a couple of thousand people, perhaps, run by pirates, which were places where pirate ships could be re-equipped and refitted and which were also places to fence the plunder, which was otherwise quite difficult to move on. Um, so that's the problem with being a pirate. <laughs> and the and the pirates, well, I suppose, I mean, that thing, you know, they'd, they'd left, they'd forsaken all, all laws and, you know, become global outlaws, but presumably their countries of origin were from all over, that some were European, some were Indian, some were African. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pirate crews were very diverse. They comprised people from all sorts of European nations. They often included uh, Native Americans. There is a large quotient of people, of people of African descent who had either escaped from slavery or been freed by piracy. And so the ships themselves could be seen very much as a sort of melting pot where all sorts of different people familiar with all different types of governance were sort of thrown together. Which is quite important, isn't it? Because I mean, there's a sense in which it might sound as if these settlements in, in Madagascar were a form of settler colonialism, but they weren't. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I think that 
there's probably some kind of slippage between this. I mean, for instance, there is a very famous town on an island just off Madagascar in which a, a wanted murderer called Adam Baldridge had set up a, a quite large town called Saint-Marie. And that really was run in a, in a sort of, uh, not exactly a settler colonial in the, in the classic sense, but certainly uh, it was just kind of, you know, the town had just been put there and Baldridge himself was a slave trader who enslaved Malagasy and, and um, sent them to, to New York, actually, as a way of fencing stolen jewels and things like that. But that, that was a settlement which wasn't really very integrated at all into, into sort of Madagascan uh, life or society. And eventually it was sacked by Malagasy who uh, were sick of uh, Baldridge's slave raiding. But the pirate settlements of the coast itself were often, it seems, a bit more, I suppose, integrated into local life. At least that's certainly the picture that Grainbow gives. In these smaller settlements, sometimes you had most definitely people who were quite careful to introduce the sorts of democratic governance of pirate ships into the settlements themselves. And in others, you had a, um, a, a sort of mixture of uh, Malagasy and settled or retired pirates. And pirates would often marry Malagasy women. And Malagasy women, it seems, were quite keen to marry pirates. And so all along the northwest coast, there started to be a sort of speckling. That's what David Graeber is a word that David Graeber uses. It's sort of speckled with pirate settlements. In terms of examples, you you begin your piece with the story of I'm probably going to mispronounce his name Ratsimilaho, Ratsimilaho, the son of an English pirate captain and a Malagasy princess, who was the ruler of the Betsimi Saraka Confederation. Was that typical of these places? Well, this gets onto the, I suppose, the uh, the the meat of the story that Grabe is interested in in pirate enlightenment, really, which is this relatively short-lived polity called the Betsimi Seraka Confederation, which seems to have been founded after some years of uh, warfare in about 1720 by a young man called Ratsimilaho, whose father was a, an English pirate captain seems called Captain Tom and whose mother whose name isn't recorded who seems to be from an aristocratic Malagasy family and Ratsimilaho had visited England and seems to have got a partial education at least he also took some friends with him before returning um, in his probably late teens to Madagascar where he at least the story goes that he distinguished himself as a in warfare against a, a larger kingdom to the south called the Tsikoa kingdom and then having defeated them after some years of war founded uh, this new polity called the Betsimi Seraka Confederation which unified lots and lots of small polities along the northwest coast including lots of the ones where where pirates were to be found. What exactly happened during those years, he seems to have ruled till about 1750, dies in 1750, and after that the whole thing starts to kind of dissolve. But um, what exactly happened isn't particularly clear. Um, and that's really the subject of the book, is trying to find out what 
what sort of political experiment was taking place on the northwest coast of Madagascar between coastal Malagasy and the quite considerable number of pirates who had settled there and become more or less integrated into into local life. And if it survived this confederate, I mean, it's interesting the name of a confederation and what that implies about the way power is distributed. But if it depended on this one charismatic, apparently charismatic leader to hold it all together, I mean, was he more than an, an enlightened despot or different from that? Well, this is where it becomes rather hard to tell what's going on. And one of the things that Graeber is interested in is, I mean, there are several things happening in the book. One of them is exactly what happened, historically speaking, on the northwest coast of Madagascar, because it was clearly some kind of quite interesting and complex political experiment, which which had to do with the kind of creation of a unified polity out of lots and lots of smaller groups, and which involved, certainly seemed to involve quite prominently, either pirates or the children of pirates, as well as involving coastal Malagasy. So it was very much a kind of um, a rather new thing, I suppose you might say. But it, the story becomes a little bit kind of, uh, become, becomes quite vague. There are lots of accounts of Ratsimilaho that, that do cast him as a sort of um, enlightened boy king. But then there are some in which he appears as actually just a sort of a local chief and not particularly agreeable one at that. Other accounts where he is actually just a lieutenant of a different king, a different pirate king called John Plantain. Because the kind of myth, the mythology of the of a kind of pirate kingdom in the tropics was quite well established through tales like the story of Libertalia. And so there were lots of these sorts of stories and lots of fantasies about pirate kings. On top of that, there were lots of people who pretended they were pirate kings in order to gain access to European courts, in order to, to move on stolen goods and to gain various sorts of favours or positions of influence. There were certainly lots of kind of fantasies and panic about huge pirate navies amassing in the Indian Ocean uh, that were going about set to lay waste to British shipping and things like that. And so there was a, there was a huge amount of fantasy, disinformation and sort of simulation amongst people that identified as pirates or pretended to be pirates and pretended to have access to these various sorts of kingdoms. So Ratsimilaho's story is mixed up with lots of these sorts of stories about pirate kingdoms or utopias. But Graeber's interested in it because it seems to be a bit more complex and have a bit more actual uh, historical substance than a lot of those stories. The Betsimi Saraka exist as a people they still identify by the term. Ratsimilaho is a well-attested person. He definitely existed. So something happened. And isn't that one of the things that Graeber's done is he's looked at that he's not, rather than just looking at Madagascar from Europe, having been to Madagascar and looked at history there and sort of moving it away away from the, the fantasies of the yes, quite. European fantasy into Madagascan history. Yeah, yeah I, think that's, I think that's quite so. And, and it's one of the reasons that the book is very interesting. It's one of the reasons why the book is, is more than a sort of uh, a shaggy dog story, you might say. Because he's interested in it because the Confederation, whatever it was, seems to have been some kind of practical and quite successful, at least for a certain amount of time, political experiment. It seems to have involved both some ideas that, that have to do with what was happening on pirate ships, 
and also to have that was combined with aspects of local Malagasy politics and society, and particularly with some aspects of Malagasy society that, on the one hand, seem to have had a certain amount of egalitarian political sort of impulse anyway, but also a certain amount of dissatisfaction, particularly among Malagasy women on the north east coast, who seem to have seen the, the coming of the pirates as, as an opportunity to escape from a very patriarchal society. And so the Betsimi Saraka Confederation itself seems to have combined a lot of these uh, kind of different, I suppose, different strands into a relatively short-lived but relatively successful political experiment, which did seem at least for some time, to have produced a more egalitarian society than the one that had previously pertained on the coast, and which had also, which had also protected the coast from slaving for uh, several decades, and which also produced a sense of self and a sense of, kind of, uh, a sense of political identity strong enough that people still identify with it to this day. Um, so the book really tries to tease out exactly what was happening there. And what it finds, I suppose, is that the person of Ratsimilaho does seem to have, he seems to have been the catalyst for the creation of what really was a, a kind of quite hands-off political system. Most of the settlements along the coast, uh, especially the ones involving, the, uh, involving pirates, were more or less left to their own devices. Local chiefs were also let to do their own thing, pretty much. And the role of Ratsimilaho as the, at the centre in the town of, um, well, what was called Falpoint or Ambonavola, was in effect as a kind of mediator and a figurehead and a mediator. It's not a totally dissimilar situation than the one that pertained on board pirate ships to a degree. It wasn't, it wasn't an autocratic system. I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say it was democratic, but um, he was elected as the chief in perpetuity, but he, nevertheless he was elected by common consent. He did not attempt to build a centralised state. And that presumably one of the reasons that Grave is interested in this, apart from you know he having done his you know, anthropological fieldwork in, in Madagascar and, and discovered this, but his... I mean, how does it fit with the argument in a book like The Dawn of Everything, which, as far as I understand it, is arguing that for most of human history for the thousands of years before what gets called civilization arose, people lived in large, complex, decentralized societies. Is there a sense in which the, the societies, the pirate societies in, in Madagascar resembled those, those earlier human societies he describes in the dawn of everything, or is that a bit of a stretch? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's, there's one sense in which I think, I mean, the dawn of everything is an enormous book with a huge amount of stuff in it. There's so much going on in that book that, that it's rather hard to summarise. I'll have a go in a second anyway. In a way, Pirate Enlightenment is a pendant, you might say, to the dawn of everything. It's a kind of further example of an experimental, quite different polity 
uh, a policy that seems to have been born out of uh, around about the same time as the you know the kind of the, the 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 ideas of the European Enlightenment, but actually have been trying to put some of those into practice in the same way that they were being put into practice long before any governments attempted to put democratic structures into practice. Pirate ships had done this, and the Confederation seems to have been uh, at least a complex political experiment by mostly by Malagasy who were in a complex and uh, ongoing relationship with a variety of outsiders that were the, that formed uh, the kind of pirate communities so it's like a, it's, it's like a further example of what you find a lot of in the dawn of everything which is many many examples stretching back into the into the deep past uh, of prehistory of different ways and alternative ways in which societies could be organized both books seek to challenge received wisdom about the way that human societies ha have been organized and have developed the dawn of everything has a big overarching argument which is that the story of uh, human development as is traditionally told from decentralized hunter-gatherer bands to the beginnings of agriculture the beginnings of big conurbations and then the centralization of politics which comes with increased increases in population and things like that is is not supported by evidence from archaeology or anthropology that the evidence from archaeology suggests that human politics you might say has been way more open way more flexible and way more interesting actually than that story uh, has room for and this isn't wishful thinking or political polemic it seems to be evidenced by 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 uh, by modern archaeology um what goes along with that is a certain sort of challenge to the way that those stories about human history have been traditionally conceived um, and in a way pirate enlightenment picks up exactly at that point because the story that it really wants to tell through quite a lot of detail about pirates uh, and Malagasy and their interactions is that what we conventionally think of as the grand themes of European Enlightenment thought were not confined in the least to um, the salons and coffee shops and authors that are usually associated with them. In fact, lots of those ideas were in the air and they were being experimented with in a practical sense by people in Madagascar, for instance, by people on board pirate ships, for instance. And so a certain picture of the Enlightenment is being shifted. We're being asked to think about those ideas again um, and think about them from uh, a quite distant perspective. And that traditional story, which Graeber and his co-author David Wingrove were challenging in the dawn of everything, I mean, part of the, that story had a political purpose, which was to shore up the kind of societies i mean as sort of a reactionary purpose if you say this you know there was sort of a whig version of history this is how society developed and we here now are at the pinnacle of it and this is how things are and this is how they should be 
and by challenging that story presumably he's was you know challenging the idea that the way it is now is is the only way it can be or the best way it can be yes absolutely and saying we society doesn't have to be organized like this and it's not fantasy to think it could be otherwise because actually for most of human history it was organized differently yes ab- absolutely that that's absolutely the case i mean the, the, what happens in the dawn of everything is exactly it's it's a it's a extremely kind of um it's an enormous compendium of alternative ways of being i mean Graeber is an anthropologist and Wengrow is an archaeologist. Um, those are disciplines concerned almost exclusively with ways of being which are unfamiliar to the societies of uh, Europe and North America um, from which those disciplines spring. And in terms of the political meaning uh, of those disciplines and the political meaning of the works, then they are absolutely about saying the conventional story is, um, well, in part it's instrumental and it's ideological, uh, and in part it's wrong, factually wrong. So if one can dispense both with the ideology and the facts, <laughs> the, the books suggest that new stories are needed. Um human beings being what they are, of course, there's no shortage of new stories available. In fact, the whole world was doing all kinds of incredibly complicated and interesting things since deep in the time that we call prehistory, when often people weren't, nobody thought anybody was doing anything apart from running around with, you know, loincloth and club. Um, But they weren't. They were doing all kinds of incredibly complicated things um, from the period of, you know, from from periods now which are, you know, seem to be as far back as the Ice Age. Um, there's always another way of organising society. Uh, it doesn't. Nothing has to be like this. The, the world that we live in is a created one, and Graeber's point. Um, which is a point that he makes in Bullshit Jobs too, is that it could have been created differently and it can be created and recreated quite differently. Francis Gooding, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You can read Francis Gooding's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Thomas Lecoeur on America's ancestor obsession, Sheila Coronel on the Philippines, and Daniel Trilling on the crimes of the Metropolitan Police. If you have any thoughts about this episode of the LRB podcast or any other that you'd like to share, you can email us at podcasts with an S at lrb.co.uk. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.